0: the battleship retention for as long as we can keep this boat afloat <laughs> uh, who are you oh i'm scott nye
1: yes i'm david backs uh tyler smith is still uh on an assignment in the hospital i don't know if you follow tyler on twitter but uh he recently posted uh, a picture of himself from his hospital bed which is the first sort of uh visual proof of life he's uh he's he's sent out in all of in all of this time which uh i think is a good sign that he's feeling well enough to uh to show himself um, Yeah, i missed that so uh that's very exciting You can check that out you can go to the caring org slash visit slash tyler and jennifer smith you can go uh to, you can find the gofundme um at uh pinned to the top of the homepage at BattleshipPretension.com. Um that's where you can support uh Tyler and his family. It feels like progress is being made very, very, very slowly, but it's enough to to keep me um uh optimistic. Uh and in the uh meantime, I said this on the Patreon, but I want to take a moment to thank Editor Large Scott and I for um filling in so well for so long and and for the uh foreseeable future right now as as well um it's been um it's made it a much smoother transition and uh, I don't know how I would have been able to keep this going without someone uh as dedicated and you know good at podcasting
0: as as Scott so thank you Scott for for doing well this. thank you for saying so I've gotten better at podcasting over the years I feel like I used to be very awkward at it and now It's like riding an audible bike.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's what happens with with everyone, you know I mean? Yeah.
0: yeah. There's a reason. I mean, Tyler and I are
1: so embarrassed of those first 40 episodes, um, that most of them aren't available unless you pay us for them. Uh, and which, uh, don't do that right now because I have, uh, I don't have any idea how to, if you were to buy the first 40 episodes, uh, I
2: don't know how you would, uh, Oh, I would get that was something
1: Tyler did. Although I think if you sign up for the Patreon at the right level um those are all there at a certain level. Um so that's one way to 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 do it. Um and yeah sign up for the Patreon. Um it supports Tyler and also you get to hear, you know, fun stuff you get to hear me and uh Me and Scott, uh, uh, me and Scott, Scott and I uh, uh, for the Oscar nominations. That's something we did a couple weeks ago on on the Patreon. That was a fun time. Uh, I think you
0: were right with me and Scott, because you wouldn't say you're you could come here. I you would say you come here. Me.
1: You're right. You're right. I guess what I'm saying is I should have said Scott and me. I think that's the
0: well, that's probably true.
1: That's the more if not grammatically correct, that's the more polite way. To put the other person sure. before yourself, I think. Um, anyway uh, that's what's going on at the Patreon. Um, but we do, uh, fun little small topics, topics here too, at the top of every show. Like, let's talk about the thing that's got everybody up in arms. Scott is, uh, the, the upcoming changes to AMC's pricing, AMC, not the, not American movie classics, of course, but the, uh, they remain free
0: to your cable subscription and, uh, not worth what they used to be. Um, but, uh,
1: AMC plus, which I have. Okay. Um, is uh worth it because you get um? I didn't they sound like I work for them, but uh AMC Plus gets you Shutter and BBC. That's like all uh, a package, and That's so whichever very you sign up for, combination. I know, but if you signed up for Shutter, you would get AMC Plus and BBC. If you signed up for BBC, you would get AMC Plus and Shutter. They're all like sisters or something. So like, I I have an AMC Plus subscription, but I probably use shutter more. That's just what I happened to sign up for first.
0: Sure. But no, the, the movie theater will be once again, finding ways to gorge you for more money. Um, yeah. By having what looks like essentially like airline seating where different seats cost different prices and there's different levels to each. And it was the inevitable result of reserve seating. And everyone told me how great reserve (laughs) seating is because they just can't stand to get to the theater more than five minutes early. And this is where you Jags have led us into hell. (laughs) No, I, I like a theater where you show up and you see, well, what's the layout like? How close are these seats to the screen? Am I going to have to sit next to that weird guy? Okay. I think I'll move a couple of seats. Um, these are the pleasures of a true democratic institution, which (laughs) reserve seating is not reserve. Seating is for the elites and I am, I am no elite.
1: Um, yeah, I still like reserve seating. But uh, um, especially if I know the theater, because uh, that, that takes away that question of like, where are the good seats? If I know the theater, I'm happy with reserve seating. Um, I know you haven't. been here to the, uh... it bit me in the ass, oh, yeah? though, last yeah. week. No, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Uh, this is the the sh- reg I was haven't been to. We have a lag. I heard, yeah, like I was yeah. referring to a raggedy boat at the top of the yeah. show, and uh, yeah. our our internet issues are indeed that that boat. Um, you haven't been to the AMC Sunset Five, and so the AMC Sunset Five is an no. interesting reserve seat in conundrum. Most of theaters are laid out exactly the same, and so if you're looking at an individual map, you don't know which auditorium you're in. However. Their theaters all feature these seating pods where every two seats is like together, but they're not in the same order in every theater. Some of them start with a single seat and then they get into two seat pods, and some of them start with a two seat pod. So you never know when you're reserving two seats next to each other if they're part of the same pod or not.
1: You can't tell on the layout, nope. it doesn't. That's, There's that's, that's no mistake. distinguishing features. <laughs> that's a mistake. Yep. Um, no, I got bitten, I went to Lemley. Me glendale uh last weekend to uh, natalie and i went to see one fine morning and natalie likes to sit on an aisle she likes to have uh easy egress if she needs to she doesn't like having to step over people if she needs to go to the bathroom you can't box bed. her in uh yeah Except I accidentally did because I picked what looked like a, a, a seat on the end at Lindley Glendale, but it turns out the second row that's like up one, you can only get to that row from one end. Oh, yeah. The other end is like fenced off
0: <laughs> in there.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I, I thought I was getting her in a place where she wouldn't have to step over anyone. What I was actually do is guaranteeing she would have to step over as many people as possible. If she wanted to get out of that row. Yeah. Um,
0: well, I'm sh- I hope she was so riveted by the latest drama from Mia Hansen Love that uh, she simply could not leave the theater.
1: Yeah, no, she didn't leave. Um, it, it was a very good movie. Um, uh, not a not necessarily a fun time at the movie. Well, sure. It was a, it's a very good movie. Uh, real quick, I it, it occurred to me that I'd never even wondered what AMC stood for. Yeah, I um, uh, bet you you won't guess. Uh, okay. I'll give you the history. That's perfect. 19 founded in 1920 as Dubinsky Brothers. Obviously, uh, in 1931 to 32, Publics Dubinsky Brothers. Then in 1932 to 39, back to Dubinsky Brothers. Then it became from 39 to 47 Derwood Dubinsky Brothers. From 47 to 68 Derwood Theaters. Now here we go. For here, here comes a big uh, left, left turn um 1968 to 69 american royal cinemas 1969 to 80 american multi-cinema 1980 is what that stands for
2: huh i, I would have thought it would
1: yeah. be american movie something american yeah. movie company american movie chain i guess no chains don't self-describe themselves <laughs> as chains um
0: uh no multi makes sense because the multiplex was fairly new around that time so they right. were distinguishing from the you know rinky dink mom and top single screen theaters that everyone hated in the 80s and which now we all love again uh
1: yeah yeah um that reminds me I, I feel like we've talked about this before but the the beverly center multiplex which is no longer there uh if you look up like press from the time it was a huge deal because it had 13 screens and that was like right insane at the time which is funny having gone there so much when i first moved out here i realized like yeah it has 13 screens because two of them were like closets
0: yeah they really <laughs> chopped them up uh when they were first yeah. doing multiplexes yeah. um and still do i mean like the los filas has maybe the tiniest little theater i've ever been in
1: yeah but i've had some fun there it's a it's a, a fun theater i saw uh uh, behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Sure.
0: I just I remember saw I saw um, Killing Them Softly there, which is like a beautifully shot movie, yeah. seeing in their tiny little shoebox that, like, yeah. you have to sit a certain degree back to even see the screen because it's weirdly, like, way high off the ground. But by then, yeah, you're so far true. back, that you might as well be watching your TV. I
1: also saw... What was the movie... Completely Forgotten movie from, like, 2007 frank langella and i want to say lauren ambrose i got nothing well that's gonna bug me
2: uh but did frank langella get
1: canceled i feel like there's something i'm
0: uh, i'm pretty forgiving. sure he did I, I think he uh i don't, was a little too into forward. a uh uh
2: amorous scene Oh, okay. Well, I mean,
1: it is romance. I can't remember. Uh, it's called Starting Out in the Even, directed by Andrew Wagner, who uh, has only made one film since, and a, a 2017 feature called Breakable You, with Holly Hunter and Tony Shalhoub and Alfred Molina and Krista Milioti. Oh, he's doing all right. Don't you hate it when oh, you are oh, breakable? Met Wally. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, this is all to say, um, given my uh, stance on reserve seating no one will be surprised to find my resan- my stance on this new AMC thing which is I don't really care I don't care that much it doesn't bother me it's fine
0: eh, uh, you elites with your extra dollar to spend at the movies
1: uh, but also you could save two dollars by getting one of the
0: shitty seats that's no way to live
1: no that seems that seems like that seems like a
0: plus (laughs) i'll go sit in those third class seats to go see the re-release of titanic that'll be fitting
1: yeah um yeah i don't i'm sorry i don't care but uh we don't have any more time for this amc we're out uh, of time Holy shit! well i mean i've said before maybe it's easier for me to not care because as i've said multiple times in this podcast i don't go to amc's um, except for well the first yeah readings. same um but if this is successful there obviously you know yeah your regencies and your cinema marks the ones i do go to we'll start uh we'll start using it uh all right um, let me real quick tell you before you move on any further Let me real quick tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds and a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors that look great they sound great Tyler and I well I use each every day of my life Tyler hopefully we will get back to doing so soon um today I was uh honoring the memory of Burt Bacharach who 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 died today or at least the news broke today that Burt Bacharach at um, a young 94 uh, years of age uh uh has left us and so i was listening to the painted memory which is the one of the uh elvis costello burt background uh, collaboration. sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds that are available available at a low low price at tweaked but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweaked and use the offer code pretension
2: david we're back
1: let's get into it shall we astute long-time listeners will have noticed that the title the number of this episode starts or ends in a zero however we have so we have like our movie journal episodes but then we have um uh the, the 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 sort of main the real ones test of episodes yeah the real the, the canonical uh, yeah. uh main uh, mainline episodes uh those have numbers the movie journals are dates the mainline ones are numbers uh when that number ends in a zero but is not evenly divisible by 50 that means we're doing a profile um
0: and new and- listeners would have just looked at the episode title and figured that out too
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, but th- new listeners don't know we do this every 10 episodes. That's um, true. So our profiles pretty much all the time now are um, tributes to filmmakers or film artists, film related um, uh, uh, figures who have recently passed away. Uh, so back in September, I want to say uh, Jean-Marie Straub passed away. Um i he, I didn't realize he'd been working on his own for so long um because, nobody did uh, his his directing partner and life partner and wife danielle Huillet, uh still guessing on that pronunciation by the way uh had died I was in hoping the, you would know for sure in 2006 uh no 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 you watch a lot of French movies. I feel like you should know uh, or yeah. at least have an idea. Yeah, uh, weirdly, I've
0: been slow to pick up French pronunciation. Uh,
1: so I, this, this was kind of an opportunity for me and to, to not only pay respects to a filmmaking team um, that mean a lot to a lot of people, um, but also for me to introduce myself to their work. Cause I knew, I knew the names Straubwile, um, and i knew them i had a general impression that they were kind of like uh leftists which they are But we'll get more into that uh uh later um but i didn't really know their films at all so i did a i would have said it i would say a deep dive it was not a deep dive because they um together made over fifty films if you include features and shorts. Um and Straub continued to make like two shorts a year uh, yeah. after after um Huile died. Uh so this is going to be a tribute in retrospective but also kind of an introduction to Straub Huile. I know I'm certain I'm certain some of our listeners are already well versed. Um but for for me this was an introduction. Scott, you told me that uh, the time that John Marine Straub died. You had seen two, yeah, uh, and uh, I remember the one of them was the first film they made together, which Muff. I don't remember what the other one was that you said you'd seen.
0: Well, it was actually um, I, I forgot it was a triple feature of sorts because the Muff is a short, and then the next one, Not Reconciled, is only like an hour long, and so they okay. also showed at the same night, uh, Fortini County. Um, which I'd forgotten about entirely, and which I uh, looked at fortunately I wrote Ooh. decent letter box notes about um, but which um, um with my for this episode, my introduction, and my uh, finale for in- engagement with them because i I didn't uh, get that much out of the films, and i uh, am sorry to say that now, having seen nine of their films, I am still at odds a little bit with their whole deal so this will be an interesting sort of profile and that most yeah. of they're very enthusiastic and this one i'm coming away a little skeptical
2: well i um
1: uh have seen 10 of them so i got you by one and uh i was i was i really tapped into to them um uh, but i'm glad that you've seen two that i haven't at least two that i haven't we'll get to more yeah uh later but we tend to do these chronologically um i did um uh read um an entire book on them uh, Oh damn. <laughs> uh for yeah this was um so in 2017 i think there was a retrospective of their films that that toured the country maybe that was when you saw uh these three i don't know if that uh yes
0: that checks uh, out
1: yeah so um this book i think was um uh it's just called jean marie and daniel huet edited by ted fent it's a collection of um uh, uh essays and then a reproduction of a long very long interview and uh uh it was published in 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 conjunction with that uh because the final essay in it is all about the restorations they did oh, um, cool. Uh for that so anyway so i read all that so that's given me at least uh some of a basis here to 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 talk about so um they're uh french and german um filmmakers i mean jean marie straub uh by his name alone you can tell it's a French first name and a German last name. Uh Daniel Hille, more more German. But um uh they never really made they didn't really make f- films in France, but they were around and met in France during like the sort of new wave and and um uh uh so Straub uh Knew those guys helped out on certain productions at the time. Um, uh, a story I read from early <laughs> that will give you a sense of their forcefulness and their combativeness and the things that that brought them together and that I think come out in uh, some of the unapologetic nature of their films. Uh, Daniel Huillet in a film class, the f- the f- um, the final like the final exam was write an essay on a particular film, a, a film that the film friend the French film industry of the time considered a French film classic. And she wrote one sentence that was essentially, How dare you make us analyze such an awful film? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh yeah, they're um there they had a tendency to speak strongly. Well, especially, I mean, Straub was definitely the more outspoken. It's funny. I mentioned there's a lengthy interview in this book. Um, and it's funny to just skim through and see like the headings of who's talking. Right. Because Straub will go on for like two pages. <laughs> and then there's there's like, for most of the interview, it feels like the interviewer does more talking than Daniel Hillet, uh does. But uh, because of that, I think, um, as I understand it, Early on, and maybe even later in the career, but especially early on, there was a uh perception that um Jean-Marie Straub was the creative force because mm. he was the more outspoken and also sexism, you know. Um, I was gonna say this so like, that yeah, sounds more like yeah, sexism. But yeah, if you I mean if you read early like reviews of their work, even though like they're credited to both. Critics would just say, like, Straub does this and Straub is like it just, just talks about about Classic. him. Um uh yeah, and there is um if you were to visit the set of of Straub Hulet movie, from what I've read, that would uh that that perception might actually uh, uh seem to bear out because he mm. was much more active in terms of that and and Danielle Hulet's uh role uh one of the essayists in this thing refers her like production type role as being something more along the lines of a line producer like uh oh. keeping things organized you know when they did uh moses and aaron which we'll get to um they were shooting in this one location that it was outside the city and like a lot of what was doing was like making sure the hotel rooms and the transportation back to and from set from the hotel was uh, was good so that did give people the impression because people think of direction as being mostly what's done on set people right did get the impression but uh it's not true she was heavily involved in the development of screenplays they also for all of their films especially the features i guess uh all how can i say all of especially <laughs> i guess for most of their films especially the, the features they would rehearse for like three or four months oh wow and yeah and that was something that danielle huile was much more involved in to the point that she would um because they, they they tailored things to the actor not that they would change dialogue because they were very literal <laughs> as you could probably tell in watching their movies it's very mm-hmm. straightforward and they do not like embellishment in reproduction at all but uh they would but she would take note of how an actor was more comfortable saying something mm. and then would create annotated annotated versions of the screenplay that had like da- like dashes or ellipses or whatever to, to, to mimic the way that the actor talks so they get it right. As you, as you can see from watching their movies, they don't like a lot of embellishment in performance either. A lot of it is very straightforward. Right. Um, um, very unaffected, uh, and uh and then of course she was also uh, uh intensely involved in the editing the one thing i didn't of a bit of research i didn't get to do i did not get a chance to watch pedro costa's documentary mm. where does your hidden smile lie which is a documentary about them editing cecilia um their 1989 film uh but i read a number of accounts of what happens in in the movie and and how they um argue but not like in like argue like collaborators not like a married couple but uh sure d- uh down to like whether to end a shot literally a difference of one frame like yeah mul- multiple accounts of the movie like got, mentioned that particular scene of them going back and forth about which frame to end the <laughs> shot on um anyway i'm giving a lot of backstory because i have it um but uh we're going to jump into the movies and go uh chronologically as we always do and and um I should have more to add based on that. But uh right there are a lot of movies. Um I, I I know that we are starting though with uh Machoke Muff because that's the first one and you've seen it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I saw it five years ago. So some of this is based on sketchy memory and some of this is based on reading other people's letterboxed uh, capsule reviews, which kind of reminded me a little bit of what it was all about. Um, It's a short film. It's like 18 minutes long. I didn't check, but my guess is it's probably on YouTube. A surprising number of their films are easily available on YouTube. Um, So I started to rent them through uh, Grasshopper until I discovered I didn't have to do that.
1: (laughs) Um, But the Grasshopper, I think all come from the restorations from this twenty seventeen retrospective and uh, they and they look good. Yeah. Grasshopper ones that I watched at least. A couple of YouTube, YouTube ones I ones found
0: did. looked quite good.
1: Okay. Um but I want to support grasshopper.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't we all? Um and <laughs> Muff is you know, maybe you don't want to pay five dollars for an 18 minute film, let's put it that way. Um right. Muff is yeah, a short s- satire on sort of uh positing that Germany is rearming itself, I believe, following World War II and kind of satirizing the um, nationalism and uh, sort of, you know, obviously not, I guess not overt Nazism, but certainly whenever you're dealing with German nationalism, one's mind does not go far from there. Um, Yeah, I don't remember too much of it other than it being one of their more straightforwardly engaging films as far as like having a more pointed sense of humor, um, sure, certainly its length helps, but um you know, a certain bleak sense of humor too, and this kind of set the stage for a lot of their political anger that I, I think for the most part comes through more obliquely in the later films that I saw. this felt more like a younger person's kind of like vim and vigor kind of anger, um, at least from how I remember it, and maybe a little f- more faster pace as well
1: oh yeah they definitely um uh they're pacing changes over time um yeah uh okay well the next step is not reconciled which we have both seen i more recently as in i saw it in december <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you saw it six years ago or whatever um yeah but uh not reconciled is based on a novel by heinrich boll and this is um going to be uh a lot of their films are i guess adaptations, yeah reproductions um of 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 works a lot of them are we'll get to this later but a lot of them are reproductions of unfinished works um, yeah that was interesting. where it seems like they're it feels like they're well they're they're so like monastically like uh devoted to getting things as literally as possible because they don't like tricks they don't don't like dishonesty and i think as someone who has said multiple times that honesty is my the number one thing that i value in movies i think that uh maybe that's the reason that i feel like uh, uh so invigorated by their work there's no dishonesty and there's also no we'll get to this more later
2: but I just have all these thoughts in my head. The. The dig on them for people who don't want to take the time to get
1: to know them is often that they're they're definitely intellectuals, but I don't, I can't think of a filmmaker that in my opinion has more respect for their audience and more refusal to talk down to their audience and condescend to them than the films that I watched, uh, uh in, in research for this episode. Um, but I mentioned their unapologeticness not reconciled is uh, a great first. I mean, it's not even a feature really 60 yeah. minutes or whatever, but, um, it, they, you know, they were living and working in, in, in Germany. The early part of their career is the Germany period. Uh, and this film was very much not well received <laughs> uh in, in Germany by audiences or or by, by critics, uh because it deals with the sort of like Nazism, but also the fact that like it, uh, I was gonna say how would you describe one who's seen it, it two months ago. I should better uh, But it's it is hard to do a lot as the movies go on, but um um in chronological order. Um instead uh but but, but it's it, it it examines a family sort of legacy of
2: cruelty or bigotry or hatred or uh, well. So, talked about the legacy, I think, of uh, Germany had come to, uh, post post World War II. There's, you know, if you've been, um, you Ben, you you know that acknowledge, they
1: acknowledge the history and they uh, uh acknowledge how awful it is they don't try to sweep it under the rug but i think the thing that Straub is criticizing is that they also kind of behave as if it's uh in the past and not reconciled is a movie that says like no, this this is part of a continuum this is you know whether or not seems specifically or not this uh the 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 hatred and the what's the word i'm looking for the um uh there's a there's a nauseating or nauseous a nauseous exceptionalism mm. that he is kind of saying didn't go away it's still you know very much his his uh um and, and doing the uh, making <laughs> mistake again of uh of saying his but very much there. um um uh milieu um is is being combative and being overtly political. Not reconciled, I think, is not uh exemplary necessarily of 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 their movies going forward. I think it's good, um, and it definitely has some memorable imagery, but uh um it's more specifically uh like point making it's 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 it, it has a sort of thesis to it in a way that i think the later films um don't uh uh, uh very man my vocabulary has evaded me today um but uh uh films very don't have these theses uh, but OK, I've gone on too long. What do you have not reconciled, Scott? What, what are your memories from? Yeah, from so long ago.
0: ago? Uh, well, my notes and Letterboxd are mainly saying uh, I didn't quite grok what they were laying down other than like, yeah, that it was charting the origins and legacy of Nazism. Um, I did say, uh, what comes through is a sense of the ease with which those in power deny the humanity of their fellow citizens and the petty motivators that drive them to it. Uh, I think there was maybe something in the film about, um, the sense in which people seek power and, uh, domination over others, not because of any, real, true ambition, but just, um, a strong sense of their own, I don't know, small mindedness, I guess, in some ways. Um, and just trying to dominate the sphere there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, as with most of their films, it's sort of dense and tangled and politically, uh, intriguing, but hard to totally chart, um, the complete through line, and I think, yeah, like I said, it was, and I'm saying now, yeah, it wasn't full six years ago that they showed this it was January, 2017. So it's been, been quite some time.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, peek behind the curtain. I got kind of booted, so I didn't hear all, everything that Scott said about not reconciled, but I, I'll bet it was brilliant. There um, sure was. So let's move on to maybe their most, best known film would you think so Uh,
0: um at least by the letterboxed, you know hot ranking it's just behind Cecilia which I would not necessarily consider their best known films but it is I think persistently available on movie which maybe kicks it up a notch
1: right yeah um well uh how did you watch this one's called sorry I should say this one's called Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach how did you watch it
0: uh I rented this from Grasshopper like an honorable citizen okay I rented this one
1: um from Apple actually. Yeah. Oh. So I'm curious, what was what language was Anna Magdalena Bach speaking in on the Grasshopper one?
0: Oh, um English. Okay.
1: Then it's the same one as the um the uh the Apple one. Oh my god, I can't think today. I think I'm just so thrown off by all the internet problems we're having. Anyway, um so this is an interesting thing that I learned uh again going back to Danielle Oliz's um very involved role she was super involved in the subtitling like they mm-hmm. you know when they would you know when when their movies would go to other countries um she would um hire the subtitlers herself and give them instruction and they would use like they had subtitlers that were with them for you know most of their careers they would they would use the same people all the time um there's an interesting story that again speaks to this thing i'm talking about about how literal minded they uh, or how strict um in terms of reproduction they always wanted to be uh if if they were making movie in german which they did at the beginning of their career and a character used a german idiom that wasn't used in that same way in other Mm -hmm. countries Danielle Hulet would still say, just keep it the way it, it, it's better to be awkward than to be inexact. <laughs> so,
0: oh, sure. um, uh, uh,
1: yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, about how like, uh, uh, strict they were. In fact, they talked about, uh, it, it, Barbara Ulrich wrote the essay that I was mentioning about the, um, restorations. And she was talking about when they did the scans, um, it changed, you know, the digital capturing changed the way that it looked, but and so they have were um having the conundrum kind of, of like, do we try and change this image to make it look more like the film source? Right. And they decided no, that's not something that would be dishonest in a way that Straubinhua would have opposed. Um uh so anyway, that goes back to that little. So anyway, what I'm saying is, um, there are like six different languages that Chronicle of Adam Magdalena Bach was made in, oh, and the Stravanhule directed all of the voiceover. So, like, even though the maybe original right. version was in German, this this version that we watched, which is um, someone speaking. Um, english with a heavy german accent there were times that i almost wished it was a subtitle (laughs) because i was like "Ah, i missed a lot of that but um that's still just as much a strabhule movie because they yeah directed they they cast the 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 narrator um and and directed her as well so this movie is uh i guess it's taken from letters
0: that um so that's second wife yeah i found differing reports on that i think as to whether or
1: not they're fictionalized yeah i think that
0: might they might be fictionalized i can't think of any like that seems to be the more likely case
1: okay because i'm glad you pointed that out because like i said i read this collection of essays even within this book there are conflicting reports oh interesting whether or not but i i also got the impression that they wrote these yeah um um, I mean I have to be just just certain, the real on
0: a box yeah, there's a certain <laughs> directness to the phrasing of the letters yeah. it's like um, you know uh, one of the things that's I think interesting about old timey correspondence is that people were just more reflexively romantic than they are now uh-huh. and uh, the correspondence here is very factual based and not a lot about the experience of her life or Box life
1: yeah. Yeah. That, um, that Ken Burns civil war documentary is like the example I always think of, of these right. like Confederate soldiers who were not like super educated people writing these lovely letters back yeah. home. Uh, yeah. Um, and now the kids got their dang emojis. <laughs> uh, so kind of Anna Anna Magdalena Bach is based on fictionalized, we're pretty sure, uh, letters that Bach's second wife wrote to him as i recall um this one you probably see more recently uh because i I know you watched a lot of these over the last week right
0: (laughs) yeah well a lot of the letters really seem to be almost just diary entries um okay because they're not necessarily like addressing Bach; they're talking about things that he did and the arc of his life but don't seem to be for anyone in particular they almost yeah seem like they're coming from her diary or something um, I found this one intermittently engaging. I think, um one of the things I persistently struggled with throughout their work is um the way that they'll do these very intensely researched and carefully arranged period pieces, but also not really care that you could plainly tell it was shot whenever it was shot like there's no like there didn't seem too much attempt to hide the present and we'll get into some examples later on where that's more overt, but I think even here. There's something in the costuming that's very artificial, um, even as the sort of instrumentation and staging of it seems more pointedly, uh, uh, ideally trying to set it more pointedly in the past. I suppose. Uh,
1: interestingly, um, I read uh, Straub talking about that. That well, that the first thing you're talking about that the what goes into their screenplay is meticulously researched and right real the a lot of the shooting they came up with a rigid thing we're going to do this and then whatever happened happened you know mm-hmm. um we'll get to more of that later but there's a lot of stuff in their later career that is shot outdoors and you will have like a shot reverse shot thing where the light is totally different yeah. than, the first, the, than the first shot and that's not they don't they don't care because that's what happened there's mm-hmm. also um all of their all the sound in their movies is live sound they don't yeah which you can really tell foley or anything um and so they're famous for i'm getting ahead of myself but um they're famous for a lot of their movies in their in the especially the 70s and 80s having these like long pans across landscapes usually valleys and mountains and stuff and uh there's a an anecdote in in here about them um uh um choosing where to end one of the pans in a movie not based on the imagery but because there was a bird chirping that they liked in the tank Mm -hmm. and they wanted to wait for the the bird uh straub said don't assassinate the bird they wanted to wait for (laughs) the bird to finish its little song and that's when they decided to cut um so that is a part of their aesthetic i won't say style because uh Straub hated the word style. Um, Classic uh, Straub. uh, Yeah. Uh, But um, that is part of their approach. But uh, yeah, so this movie has um, these long things of Anna reading her diary entry, whatever you say. Uh, There's some scenes, uh, and um, it's worth noting here, the actor they have playing Bach was the person they had. Their heart set on. So Mature come off and Not Reconciled were made before this, but this was the movie they started developing together that started their career, that started their marriage, was them coming up with this idea and developing this movie together. And they worked on it for years and years. Um and at, at least one point, if not another point, had the funding to make it, except the funder said you have to cast this person as Bach. Mm. And they were like, No, we and so this is more of their uncompromising nature. They were like, No our movie has this guy playing Bach um, and um, that's crucial to it. So we're not going to take your money. So they had to wait until they could do it their way and they made it. Uh, but the thing I, w- we haven't talked about yet the my favorite part of the movie is that there are uh, multiple scenes, maybe making up the bulk of the movie yeah. of just pieces, Bach pieces being played, um, you know, uh, live by uh, an orchestra in period, uh, clothing oh that's the thing i was also going to say is Straub saying that um i think this one was Straub, like because he does most of the talking so i think he was the one who said this <laughs> um that we have an idea of what like a time period really looked like based on the movies we've seen about that time period but that the clothes and wigs in something like this are actually more more real for these characters that they're like oh interesting social status like he talks specifically about like you know men wear wigs and the wigs in this movie kind of like they kind of shake around or whatever he talks about that being i mean i don't know how he knows he wasn't there either (laughs) but that being more more authentic um anyway so these scenes are these scene isn't the right word these interstitials that like i said probably make up the bulk of the runtime of the movie are just pieces being performed in full with a single shot and uh what i would say i would say each one of them having its own unique and beautiful composition mm. uh that that made it uh i mean these 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 directors are um obviously based on their uh inspirations a fan of the fine arts although not as much so as you would think um uh they often made movies or claim to have made movies that are adaptations of these operas and stuff. Right. Um, as a way of helping themselves to understand things that they like works that they didn't get. Huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, so anyway, I don't know, but, um, there's a painting type aspect to a lot of their compositions where, uh, yeah, it, their shots hold for a long time, but when you've got an entire orchestra or, or whatever you would call a chamber orchestra, um, playing an entire piece there's so much for you to look at and there's so much so many little uh little movements uh i'll I'll quote straub again he did most of the talking like i said um he said he wanted people watching chronicle of Anna magdalena bach to take in the way that fingers move over instruments the way that the audiences who were seeing the Lumiere brothers first films would have taken in the rustling of the leaves, in The wind. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's all to say. I, uh, I loved this movie.
0: Yeah. I liked it. All right. I think, um, (laughs) I think there's something about the stasis of their setups and the, uh, lack of adornment in their lighting design that makes it a little harder to see the beauty of the fingers on the instruments that they're trying to convey. I, I think you can watch those early Lumiere brothers shorts and instantly be taken with the wind in the trees in part because they didn't entirely know what they were doing. And so the, the lighting would really just like capture the feeling of being outside in a very kind of accidental way where you'd get like sudden lens flares or like bursts of, um, what am I trying to say of like, I'm also losing my vocabulary here because there's a thing yeah. of like, you know, a light meter where you're supposed to set it to a certain degree. um, based on the lighting available but if they weren't you know setting it that purposefully a sudden explosion of light would saturate the screen um here it's much more stayed and I, at least to me the movement within the frames was not as compelling as he seems to be intending it to be
1: yeah, it was to me uh, <laughs> but that's the nature of you know art right
0: absolutely uh, people see different things. Uh I did I did so, like that you get a, a sense here of the practical realities of being a great artist. Um that it, there's a lot in the correspondence that's concerned with like and this is how he funded this and then he had to do this job and it's like he can just sit around being a genius musician all the time like dude had to hustle. Uh
1: yeah, probably something that um Stravinsky very much related to. About him. Uh now my next one I'm jumping all the way to 1974. That's nineteen sixty seven, going all the way to seventy four, unless you have something. I in got between. two in between. Okay. Um the first one
2: I'm
0: glad you focused more on the German period than I did. Uh wasn't by design. And in fact, the next one I'm talking about, uh at least when I s the version I saw was in French. Um Oh, I didn't realize, see, I didn't even realize they made a movie in French. Um, it's Spelled Othon, I'm sure given the French okay. of it all, it uh, has a different pronunciation. Yeah. Um. So one of the things we'll be talking about as we go along, and I'm not sure the extent to which you encountered this, depending on the sources of uh, the films, how you saw them, is they had... Similar actually to Jean-Luc Godard, uh, somewhat of a testy relationship with subtitling. And so in some of their films, there will be long stretches of dialogue that go completely unsubtitled. Uh, That shit drives me crazy. Good for you guys. Um, I can can read and watch at the same time. Don't worry. (laughs) Or at least I thought so until I saw this film, which is like wall-to-wall dialogue and was, you know... I guess thankfully, fully subtitled in the YouTube version I saw, but was impossible to keep up with it in terms of like because the actors are speaking so fast and there's so much dialogue and there's only so you know long a subtitle can sit when you're trying to translate all of it. So kudos to whatever you know unaffiliated nerd sat down and actually translate and put the subtitles together but um, it was a it, difficult one to uh, follow. It's where di- are you
1: sure they were like third party subs? Um,
0: I guess I'm just taking as inspiration, the idea that in every other like official release film of theirs, I saw there was big patches of non subtitle dialogue. And I know that they did that in part because they didn't, they wanted to convey like the meaning of it and less mm-hmm. like uh, the point by point Um, everything that's being said and wanted people to be able to focus on the images to a degree. So I'd be surprised, but I I couldn't say for sure.
2: Um,
0: Yeah, this is an adaptation of a tragedy from 1664. Um, I'm reading this straight off of Letterboxd, uh, which in turn was based on an episode of Imperial Court Intrigue uh, chronicled in Tacitus' histories. Histoires? They use kind of classical costuming, you know, a lot of togas and um, actors reading things, you know, in somewhat flat diction, as is very common for especially their earlier stuff. I think the later stuff I saw, there tends to be a bit more actoral flourishes. Um, And I definitely, you know, got the sense that there was some court intrigue here, um, got the sense of a classical drama. But I, I think this is where I start to come up at at odds with their work is that I like a little drama in in my drama. Um, I I found sometimes their lack of style, uh, very distancing and not very involving. And whereas, you know, where Godard couldn't engage with that sort of thing too, but I always got a stronger sense of personality. In much of their films, I didn't really get a sense of how they saw the world beyond um something that they could have conveyed through an essay or something which doesn't say their films are essayistic i don't think they are it's just that um there's a certain reproductive quality to how they interpret these classical dramas that doesn't feel like it really comes from an emotional center and for me um I, i think i just need like some some emotional hook on it all
1: uh yeah, I I haven't seen this one, but that's um that's very much by design. They um uh especially as they went on, they did not want to ever impose a point of view. Um on God forbid you have a point, of, point of view, you know. <laughs> uh I think they would say they have a point of view, but they <laughs> were allergic to imposing a point of view. Um uh Straub again, cause he does a little talking, <laughs> um, referred to it as, um, having a viewpoint opposed on you is even if it's a, a positive viewpoint, uh, is like getting hit on the head. And even if you get hit on the head with the best of intentions, it still hurts.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think just for me, like art's all about getting a window into someone else's soul. And I, I just didn't, you know, whatever soul they're trying to convey, I, I only intermittently got a glimpse of through these films. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, th- their films do, because there's there's so much adaptation, that their films do not stand apart from the continuum of art that they're reproducing, and aren't meant to. Hmm. So, it does almost sometimes feel like, not, it, it feels almost like I'm engaging in a form of, not criticism, but like almost... Open-ended analysis, as opposed mm-hmm. to, um, like this isn't a Stravoye film. This is a treatise on this. Uh, I'm trying. I'm forgetting who wrote the play. Uh, Othon, um, Cornel is that his name? Oh yeah, Pierre Pierre Cornille. um It's about him. Uh, uh, anyway, by the way, I looked it up. Uh, this film is fr- is in French, but uh, as you said, I'm not saying I doubted you. But it is a West <laughs> German. It's a German, West German production. Oh, sure. In French, shot in Italy. Classic.
0: Um, The next film dives right into Italy. It's called History Lessons. Um, This was definitely... Definitely, probably. That's a fun phrase. Um, I would say the more intriguing of their setups of the nine films I've seen in sort of like the loose design of it, not always necessarily translating to uh, a form of engagement that i can really hang with but um i liked what they were going for anyway here um it's set in contemporary rome but it's just about this guy kind of wandering around and it's got three sequences that are like totally my bag where this guy's literally they spend an entire mag of film just filming this guy driving around rome and I'm like, yeah. tight. This I can hang with. <laughs> uh, I, I I would be happy to spend the entire 88 minutes of the runtime with just that. Um, unfortunately, he does stop along the way to uh, talk with ancient Romans about the economic and political manipulation of ancient Roman society, which got a little harder to follow. Um, I, I love to see a vision of Rome in 1972, real swing in time, um, gets the street scenes, get the guy, you know almost running people over and what's great of course about european roadways is that they were not designed for cars at all and not reconstructed for cars at all um they're just like these tiny little (laughs) avenues that people have to dive around and try to make work with cars and so he'll like get to midway down a road and then there's another car coming the other way so one of them has to stop and back up and let the other guy through um all that stuff was aces um the conversations with ancient Romans, um, I definitely found harder to follow and definitely the intermittent subtitling didn't help. Um, where he would be like, Oh, now this is the line. I get to know what they're saying. Oh, this is the line. I don't know what they're saying. And how do I connect the two who can say, um, I, I it frustrates me when Godard does it. And it frustrated me here as well. Uh,
2: this is,
1: uh, an adaptation of, uh, Bertolt Brecht novel. I, I can't remember if you said that. Um, but, not. uh, Bertolt Brecht was uh clearly their their hero uh it was not the this is not the last time that their um uh work overlapped with with his um and he s- similarly was um an artist who uh intentionally alienated the audience and thought that art should should do that um and so things like not translating all the subtitle, <laughs> not, not subtitling all the dialogue is very Brechtian uh, from my yeah. understanding. Don't, don't quote me as like some sort of Brecht expert. This comes from me reading about him. Uh, but um, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue against your distaste for it. No, it doesn't bother I, me. That but, I uh,
0: argue against my distaste all, all night. I, I think... But I'm
1: just saying it's part of their,
0: that is their worldview. You said they don't you don't know, have a <laughs> worldview, that is their worldview. Their worldview is denying you shit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, at least Brecht has some good jokes along the way, you
1: know? <laughs> okay, so now we're moving on to 1974 and their final German film. Um again, uh, so History Lessons is an adaptation of an unfinished novel, Moses and Aaron, or Moses und Aaron. Um is an adaptation of an unfinished opera. No, oh, I have this down in uh,
0: 75. Why do I have this down in 75? That's weird. It
1: might be. I'm going for the filmography that's printed in the back of this this book. It wow. uh Yikes. it could be seventy five. We got the internet, David. Um but it's just easy to have it right here. Yeah. But uh yeah, whatever whatever year you want to call it, uh 1974, 75. Um Moses and Aaron is an adaptation of an unfinished opera by Arnold Schoenberg, who again an artist they clearly liked and and did more than uh um, one movie. Uh, w- uh, about his work. Um, this movie was shot uh, entirely outdoors. You talked about the lighting in *Chronicle of Anna Magdalene Bach*. They clearly liked shooting outdoors because they didn't like artificial lighting. Yeah. Um, so that a lot of their stuff takes place outdoors. Uh, this one's entirely outdoors, although some of it takes place at night. So obviously, there's on a, there's artificial light there. I can't remember. did I even asked you. Did you watch this one? I did uh okay
0: Uh, i like parts uh, of it yeah
1: it it it's um shot entirely in um uh and the ruins of an old roman i guess arena um which i think uh, they spent
0: like years looking for a setting for this
1: yeah i read yeah that's very like them um and uh yeah so it has uh this I would describe this and, and other people that i read these essays with d- describe this as their most accessible film because of the simple fact that it, it tells a story and because everyone is singing, they can't do that flat affect thing. Right. They like, so, um, uh, and it also like, it has, uh, uh, I've, I've talked before about like minimalist type of films, which, um, again, These guys didn't like anything anyone ever said about their films. So they hate it when their films are called (laughs) minimalist, but they clearly are. Um, Yeah. They were real cantankerous cranks, Um, sometimes stepping over overboard, especially Straub. I don't know if you know about what he said at the Venice film festival in uh, 2000s. He said, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty sure I have it. As long as there is a mere American imperialist capitalism in the world, there will never be enough terrorists that's what he said
2: (laughs) Um,
0: so
1: uh uh, yeah i'm not sure i agree with this conclusion
0: but just the phrase there can never be enough terrorists (laughs) yes it's a it's a a good turn of phrase uh
1: yeah um a lot of people distance themselves from him (laughs) uh, (laughs) um but uh what was i saying about the minimalism okay so yeah the something that happens in their movies, a lot of them is like there's very they come up with a framing, they they use it, and uh shots last a long time so that when there is something like a pan, which they do beautifully, I think, uh, and it's one of the things they're best known for, are these kind of slow pans. Um, although Moses and Aaron has some kind of faster pans too, from like Moses and Aaron to the chorus. Um or something that happens later in this film which is like short shots with blackness in between yeah the sound um uh it can become quite stirring so the 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 sort of like golden calf section of the i'm just here assuming everyone's familiarity with the story of Moses uh the golden calf section um goes as, as by their standards especially uh pretty nuts you know, yeah. you got people
0: running around, naked. Quite, you got a guy on fire. Yeah. It's quite yeah. taken by surprise by that section of it. Uh, given that, I mean, like you said, that you can only get away with so much flat affect when you got people singing. I would say this is among the flatter singing I've seen performed. You know, <laughs> they they definitely try. It wasn't for like. Maybe that's fun. just
1: how the Germans do it, though.
0: Well, that could be true. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then that section was like, oh, shit's going down now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like this one pretty well. I definitely think it, it's probably the more straightforwardly beautiful of their films in terms of the, yeah, the lighting design and the setting of it all. I, I do think a lot of the first section is a little flat for me um, in terms of how it's presenting groups of people singing in terms of, you know, sometimes you get those like not special effects sequences and films like this where they're like cut to a staff and then cut away and then cut back into it's a snake and it's like kind of charming but there's something yeah. about like how rigorous the rest of the film is that like those little ramshackle things just feel like yeah there could have been like a slightly fancier way of doing it
1: uh but they would have considered that a lie yeah I'm sure they yeah. would <laughs> uh, I'm glad you said rigorous I should have been saying that the whole time that's like the word for their yeah their films uh this one was also part of the reason it was seen as so accessible it was um well received in the states there's one of the essays in this book is entirely about the history of their films being distributed into the English speaking world um mm. and this one was kind of big in the states because it came to the states in 76 during the 76 uh presidential campaign so this this movie about two guys by, like who are both offering different sort of perspectives of how to lead a group of people. Sure. Um, I think was, was taken as uh politically relevant um, by the, by the U S audiences uh, who, who some of whom still liked them. But uh, then what happened was they went to Italy and uh, um uh, the, the movies they made in this next period, uh, which I like the ones that I've seen, um turned off uh some of their uh uh previous supporters. Um so uh for uh Fortini Canny is the first uh Italian film.
0: And uh go ahead, because I haven't seen it. Yeah okay. Um this uh when I saw it back in twenty seventeen I, I liked this considerably more than not reconciled if only because I could somewhat follow it a little bit more. I didn't know when the film started that like the spare subtitling was intentional. And I was like, "These lazy bastards assembling this print. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's still more of this came through to me than some of their other works that use a similar kind of thing. Uh, Basically it's about uh, this Italian communist essayist, uh, Franco Fortini reading excerpts of uh, his kind of landmark book, which translates to the dogs of Sinai. Um I pretty much just gonna read what I wrote a letterbox because it's probably a better encapsulation than I could come up with now. But it's, I said uh, those sections look back on his Jewish heritage having survived in Europe through World War II and seeing authoritarian regimes continually pop up even after the World Society successfully defeated and condemned fascism in Europe. Uh he notes the vile racism expressed towards people of Arab descent and the way Israel had taken on certain authoritarian characteristics despite having risen as an escape from precisely that um i think what stood out to me most at the time is that like well it's, it's kind of interesting it speaks more uh, much to the time in which it was made you know the mid-70s as it does anything else but it's ironic of course that like he'll be reading these sections of the book that are very polemic and very like aggressively communist but he, dude's like living in luxury he's like in this gorgeous italian countryside and just like this va- not like the most vast estate but you know, he's living well for himself. Um, And I'm not sure the extent to which that was like their purpose in making it, but it's kind of just an interesting document of both a time in which, you know, communist thinkers could make a decent living, but also just the distance at which um, he ends up living from some of the ideals he expresses. Um, So it's an interesting film well worth seeking out. Um, and I didn't see too many. I don't think this is the only like straightforward documentary of theirs I saw, but I'd be curious to see more because I wonder if their approach I might find more compelling in documentary form. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I saw at least I saw one or two, I think that would qualify. Um, so next for me is from the cloud to the resistance, which
0: I wanted to see, but I didn't get around to. Yeah,
1: this one I I really liked. It's, it's, um, it's, adapted from two different novels by cesare uh cesare pavise i think sure um and so it actually has two segments the first segment is actually six segments um it's (laughs) it's it's six dialogues take place in sort of the ancient period It, it it opens with a um man talking to a goddess um uh who cares about him but he's saying i'm going to do my own thing uh but then it, it has um uh i think and it's the second one is um imagining oedipus as a young man on the road to wherever um uh but after he's killed his father if that makes sense right okay uh oh yeah because he kills his father early i haven't read oedipus since i was in high school so i'm sorry um Anyway, uh, I'm trying to remember all of them because there's six. I'm not going to remember all of them. Uh, One of them is two hunters. This is the one I really loved. Um, uh, Two hunters talking about a man who might have been a comrade of theirs, a fellow hunter whom they killed because he he didn't literally turn into an animal, but he started acting like an animal and they killed him. And they're on either side of whether or not they should have done that. but uh that that rigor is is there, you know that entire first section of the the um man talking to the goddess the goddess is sitting up a tree up in a tree, he's standing on the ground, and it's just like a back and forth, just like there's like. <laughs> Two shots, and they just repeated those uh for that entire little segment. The Oedipus one is even more rigorous, where it's a single shot from the back of the cart you barely it's two guys talking, but you barely even see only if they turn far enough to e- toward each other to even see their faces. Mm. It's mostly just the back backs of their heads. but the hunter one has a few uh uh i don't know flights of 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 fancy there's um uh, it takes place at night and uh one of the men is if as I recall one of the men is seated, and one of the men is standing, but there's also a shot of uh a wolf who's lying on a nearby rock that it keeps returning to, and one of the the men's uh swords or or daggers or whatever is lying on the rock next to this wolf, and just this uh this shot of a wolf uh lying on a rock with the probably fake moonlight glistening off of this dagger is uh Really stunning to me. Uh really beautiful. So I can't remember all of those. And then the second half of the movie um takes place in the twentieth century, based on a different PBC novel about a man uh returning to his small town or his village, I guess, that he grew up in after a long time away. Uh, which obviously will be the subject of a later uh <laughs> um uh a movie that we've already mentioned, Cecilia. Uh but um uh he 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 comes he comes back and and uh the town has changed drastically from the war most of the people that he knew were gone or dead um and uh he's just having conversations with the uh, when you watch all these movies in a long in a short yeah. period of time sometimes things so i can't remember who the other guy the guy is like a local government official I can't remember now um but he's made basically walking around the entire movie talking to this guy about the town and how things have changed but then there's also this kid um uh who's who's around uh and they um he gives the kid a knife um uh or he offers the kid he was like do you want I can't really. do you want money or do you want a knife and he was like candy or a knife and he was like I'll, the kid's like I'll take the knife and he's like um, and what if your father takes this away from you and says, the kid says, uh, if my father tries to take the knife away from me, I'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so I think this movie. Um, oh yeah. There uh, the, I think the final segment um, in the first half, the first half is really the best part. The second half is good too, but the first half is really all, all these little dialogues. The final one is this guy has come from one part of ancient rome to another where they have different traditions and he um and different religious traditions and he has come ostensibly to volunteer to be a sacrifice to uh these people's god that they have to sacrifice one person a virile person uh in the fields every year to keep the crop uh uh growing so he's ostensibly come to do that what we realize over the course of his dialogue with the head of this town um uh his real sort of uh rhetorical um um goal is he eventually makes the case that this guy has benefited from generations of these uh uh sacrifices. His family have become who they are and have become wealthy who uh because of this. And he argues that your blood is so imbued with the power that if we just sacrifice you instead, the town will never have to sacrifice anyone ever again. <laughs> um so you get their their leftism very much coming across sure. uh there. Um uh but I guess in a different way than um not reconciled, but similar, the movie is I think making a point of like we think that we have we'd like to think that we have progressed, but some things um some there's there's some sort of uh barbarism or deceit um in that that has always been a part of of of, of humanity. Um or maybe specifically of Italy's um, it wouldn't be beyond Straubman who led to make that kind of uh, argument. They were very critical of specifically like Western European nations. That was what they knew. And that was what they chose to criticize. They didn't weirdly didn't spend a lot of time um, criticizing the U S they were happy to visit the two times. I think they visited the U S and also Um, Straub once said that he preferred negative reviews written by Americans, American critics to negative reviews written by German critics, because at least the American critics could be funny. Uh, there you go. (laughs) Uh, like there was something else I was going to say about this and I'll like fucking kick myself. Uh, sure. If I, later when I remember what it was, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, we were three into the Italian period and, uh, I think it's going pretty well. Um, but I'm jumping all the way to the 80s next for class. Yeah, my relations. next one is 84. Or next as well. Yeah, 84. Is that class relations or? Is yeah, that... yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so class relations, um, is the only uh, of the ones I've watched the only one that maybe has um a challenge to Moses and Aaron is being uh most accessible because it is just a straightforward
0: story yeah as um, far as their sort of thing goes yeah it's pretty uh it's relatively easy to follow and not a lot of plot developments anyway but also just yeah. adapted from a well-known novel which helps
1: yeah a franz kafka uh novel um uh so um it's about a young like middle class man right he's like yeah he's supposed to be like
0: 18 or so yeah um, recently been- come to his own as it were
1: yeah. Uh he's been shipped off uh to the US. The Franz Kafka novel is called America. Um the K. Right. Yeah. Not with three K's. The guy's <laughs> <No>. cute, uh <laughs> would would have us uh spell it. But um uh Yeah, so he comes to uh, uh America and um I guess uh has a series of odd jobs (laughs) Um, but how would but he's he's got this um well it's all it's hard to like detect and all that flat affect uh but he seems to have some sort of is it ambition or is it just an assumption of his uh uh righteousness or his better his place in the world i don't know how you would i yeah his
0: attitude i hadn't thought about it in those terms but i think i would ascribe it more to yeah an assumption of privilege coupled with um the feeling of america as the land of opportunity so he's like well if i'm privileged in the land of opportunity clearly things are going to start happening for me
2: yeah um okay uh yeah i'm not going to try and pretend we didn't just have a little stop down because of more
1: um so we were talking about class relations i don't remember i don't know where i was when we when I when I dropped out. Um, but I think I was saying that, like, uh, it's this isn't necessarily my favorite, um, but there's a lot of things that are interesting about it. If I give some backstory, uh, this was their second time in
2: um, in the US and uh, also their second time in. their during their first trip. To the u.s when they were um
1: touring around with uh with a few of their films uh um straub told daniel talbot of the new yorker who uh distributed most of their early uh films um in in the u.s that when he was booking the sort of tour around uh the u.s and canada to show these films um the only thing that was imperative to Straub was that he get to see the Mississippi river. So <laughs> that's why they uh, stopped in St. Louis and showed some films at a university there, but I guess they liked it enough that they came back. Uh, so most of this is a, this is an Italian film. Most of it is shot in studios in, in Italy. Um, well, the, the characters are speaking German, of course, because it's Kafka. Right, right. Um, uh, but um there are two sections. There's a brief uh, thing they shot in New York when he arrives and gets off the boat. They actually shot that at the harbor in, in New York where someone would get off a a boat. And then um, the entire section on the train was shot on an Amtrak train running from St. Louis to Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, because uh, a section of that uh, line, which I have written on, uh, goes past the, the Missouri River for a time and they wanted a train going alongside a river. Um, sure. So they shot that entire thing uh on on an Amtrak. Um the other thing that's very interesting about this and their approach is that each for each scene in the movie, they picked a place where they would put the camera. So like the framing might change and I don't I don't know if lenses change. I can't remember uh or, or not. But the this fucking like tripod the camera's on is in one place for the entirety of that scene Uh, and that's something they do in each scene in this movie it's part of their rigor um uh there's also things that are like if you know about them when you're watching they're so literal minded but i actually think they're very um uh helpful um the character being middle class but having connections to you know politicians and upper class, but also like working these menial jobs, the way that he is framed, who's in the frame with him will depend on his status in any Mm. particular scene. So like when he's on the boat at the beginning and he's getting in trouble, he's framed with the, like uh, the stoker or whatever you call the guy who uh, does the steam, like the coal, the coal shoveler guy framed with him. But then once he's offered this, chance to go to to america he they frame him so that the the coal shoveler guy is no longer in the same frame with him because he's now he's leaving that strata and moving to somewhere somewhere else Um, and that's the thing they do uh throughout the movie um last bit of trivia on this movie um the uh, anecdotally, I don't know for sure. This is true, um, but the unused black and white stock they had when this, when they were done with this movie was donated to Jim Jarmish, who was making stranger than paradise at the time oh. needed black and white film. black and white uh, film.
0: Well, I am much more fond of stranger than paradise than I am of any of these, but um, I, I, there was a <laughs> lot of immediate appeal, I think in the black and white sort of you know it's not as stylish as the trial certainly but i think it has a similar sort of perspective on kafka and um i think you are articulating it in that way kind of brought out uh the sense of things i was getting in terms of how it was staging his alienation uh, among society
1: um okay i missed some of that because of internet issues but uh i'm sure again i'm sure it was great obviously <laughs> i've only got one more you've only got one more which one is it cecilia oh okay well uh i'm going to talk about black sin real quick we're going again uh, <laughs> keep having internet problems we're just going to power through uh so they made back to back they made the death of Empedocles and black sin i didn't see the death of Empedocles, but uh these are both um based they're basically both the same story um uh the the same playwright, I guess, wrote like three completely different versions of the same story and they adapted two of them. <laughs> um, but, uh, Blackson is only like about 45, 50 minutes long. Um, this one I'm with, uh, Scott of like, I don't really know what was, what's happening. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lot of outdoor, like, uh, uh, ancient Rome costumes and, and conversations, but, uh, not being able to necessarily follow what it was about kind of did let me focus more on their style. Yeah, that's right. Strub. I called it style. Watch um, out. Yeah. Uh, especially as a this, this period of the career um, where they're shooting outdoors on mountaintops, overlooking valleys, um, beautiful, framing letting the film roll run for long periods of time and then occasionally interrupting it with slow pans around the, the Valley. And so the things that, um, uh, that, that they love, um, uh, you know, that, that, that Scott was talking about them being like very meticulous in development, but then like, kind of like, you know, letting it fly when they're shooting in terms of just like the, sun going behind a cloud or whatever there's um animals that you know wander by there's actually they did so many takes and this is something they always did in fact they were they were very frugal filmmakers um uh but uh huile said their only luxury is stock they bought a lot of stock and they did a ton of takes of of everything um oh another interesting um very leftist thing about all of their film sets. The crew got paid at the beginning of every week, not at the end of every yeah, week. Yeah, good for them. Um yeah. Uh but uh so Black Sin is an interesting one in that I don't I don't know which version was on Grasshopper, but there are I don't know and I don't know if all of these still even exist anymore. But there are one time there were at one time four different versions of Black Sin that were the exact same order of shots and construction but all different takes. Mm. Um and uh they were made for different festivals they would edit together different uh versions for like different festivals i guess and um i guess like among the straw uh maniacs um they're referred to as like the lizard version and the fox version because like the animals that happen to be in the shot like this one you know has uh lizards that runs through the frame Oh, frame interesting. that's the lizard version um anyway so yeah the um so that's Plexian. I don't have much more to say about it because again, I don't really understand what happened in it. But um uh I enjoyed watching it, especially for you know a 45 minute movie. Sure. Uh another sh- on the one on the shorter side is another documentary, so maybe it's it's for you, uh, although it wasn't for the museum that commissioned it, <laughs> who re- rejected it. Uh Cézanne dialogue with Jo Joachim or Joachim. Uh well I guess it's French, so it'd be Joachim Gasquet. Anyway uh it is ostensibly a documentary about cezanne it uh barely shows any cezanne paintings they uh, they didn't want to show any at all uh initially because um uh of their uh, strict belief that um cinema is photography not painting and um they would have hated i'm sure they did hate like cgi because um the idea of something being in the frame that wasn't in front of the camera is, uh, uh, would would have made them vomit, I think. (laughs) Um, so there's very little, um, of, um, Cezanne. There's actually like the, the main image that I think of, uh, and that pops up repeatedly in, in this, this book actually, um, is just a shot of a mountain as it, currently existed in the late eighties with uh, like buildings and stuff in front of it, like modern buildings. And that's in place of a mountain that Cezanne painted more than once. They just showed, Mm. here's what it looks like now, like kind of mimicking the like distance and angle and framing, but, um, but they never show you the, uh, the Cezanne version for comparison. They just opt to show you the real, like, modern day version uh in instead um it uh it it, it has um yeah I, I i can't say that i learned much about Cezanne, but um they were obsessed with Cezanne. uh so this, hmm. you know it makes sense they made um uh at least one movie about him probably more there's 50 something movies here uh more stories from when they visited um the u.s they um when they were in chicago they went to the art institute not to see the paintings but specifically to see the Cézannes. that's all they cared about hmm. was to go see the Cézannes. and then when they were in new york they <laughs> hitchhiked to uh some town or city small city in pennsylvania that has a collection of Cezannes that don't travel or at least not at this time they didn't they were like permanent fixtures and that so the only way to see them in person was to to hitchhike to them which um is an an illustration of their uh, uh doggedness but also like weirdly an encapsulation of their entire like philosophy of how you engage with art that you need to come to it and not expect it to come to you uh in any way whatsoever. Um so yeah that's them and Suzanne. Um the the movie is very interesting. It has a lot of uh uh shots and and um it has uh I can't remember who the interviews are with. These all are kind of running together, but um if you want to know what Danielle Hile sounded like, uh, because as I said she didn't talk all that much, um she is reading um, most uh, or uh, a lot of the narration in in Cezanne reading other people's letters and interviews. Um, uh, okay, let's move on to Antigone, uh, which is the next uh, Bertolt Brecht. Not that Bertolt Brecht wrote Antigone, obviously Sophocles, right? I'm not. I'm not looking that up. I'm just saying I'm not uh, that remember. smart. I think it's Sophocles. All right, I'm, I'm going to go with that. Uh, but it's it's their adaptation of a Bertolt Brecht adaptation of, of Antigone. Um, and this one has the, uh, well, like Moses and Aaron, it's shot in, uh, the ruins of an arena, but a different one. Um, and it has an even more rigorous, uh, uh, stylistic again whatever structural approach than class relations i mentioned in class relations they picked a a fixed point for the camera to be in every scene for antigone it's the entire movie because it's all one location even though it's supposed to be like you know different parts it's all shot in one location but they i guess they got there they put the tripod down and they were like this is where the camera's going (laughs) to (laughs) be for the entire shoot now like i said the camera moves the frames are different or whatever but you are seeing the 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 arena from the same vantage point for the entire movie um uh i know I, I, I know they were uh, opposed to changing too much uh when they adapted stuff but from what i understand they did take out in breck's adaptation of antigone the um modern day politics were more overt and the fact that it's like a world war ii that he he turned it into like a world a post a europe post world war ii sort of uh allegory they took out a lot of those direct uh uh references but um i think it's still meant to be imbued with uh um a political point of view but it's still uh antigone and um it definitely stylistically fits in with what i was saying about certain parts of from the class of the resistance definitely blacks it blacks in um uh, and going back to moses and aaron there's um a, a lot of seeing uh you know one person on one side and then the reverse shot will be three people that were facing him in a direct line but we see them at an angle because the camera can't move uh, um and uh uh there's the the pans and 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 all of the stuff that really defines this period of their of their work um uh but also uh very much the um uh you were saying how obvious it was that they only use recorded live sound they didn't sweeten anything they didn't do any adr um and these this and black sin you can really tell there's a uh one of the I guess essays or or things in this book is a as a collection of re- like remembrances of people by people who worked with them and their sound recordist guy their sound guy talked about in these outdoor scenes you're seeing wide shots and so um, the microphone would have to be a fair amount away f- from the person talking oh, so that sure. it wasn't in it wasn't in the shot but they liked that because it picked up more nature sounds they. The, they they wanted that huile especially would um for their movies after every take, you know, Straub would be mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, I'm good with that take, but huile would have to listen, not watch, but just listen back <laughs> to the take before you sure. could sign off on it and they would and they would and they would move on. Um so I mentioned yeah I should have mentioned that with Black Sin too. Black Sin and Antigone are um uh, very um good exemplars of of that. Okay, you've got one more. I've got two more, but our next one is the same. So uh nine's Cecilia It's breaking my heart, shaking my Confidence. I know baby. I couldn't help it uh, the entire
0: movie having that yeah. song onto my head. Um, um yeah, yeah this go was, ahead. I've talked you, a lot. You referred to this earlier, um, in terms of uh guy kind coming, coming back into Italy, um and bopping around to a few different people and kind of having these long conversations. I I like this more at the start where they have a little bit more pointed and, um, interesting camera angles. than I think I've seen from them to this point, uh, by the time then in the second half, it devolves into a single room, uh, where it's just the guy and his mother, you know, I mean, I think it's some interesting territory in terms of one's legacy and what one owes to their family and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it just wasn't as cinematically interesting in the second back half as it was in the first. Um, but it's, it was interesting between this and class relations to see them kind of evolving a little bit in terms of their approach to acting. You know, I'd still say the affectation is overall flat, but it's almost like it's flat at a higher register, if that makes sense. It's like everyone's kind of performing in the same way, but at a higher uh, stake than they had been in uh the prior films which was much more like almost monotone here you got people like overtly shouting at each other and you know one can ascribe cultural uh stereotypes to the difference between working with german actors and italian actors <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah. i'm sure that's not all that came into play uh
1: yeah i'll go even beyond that and say uh johnny buscarino uh gives the best performance that i've seen in any strove movie i i I loved his like he's obviously a thoughtful person but he's also like quick-tempered and pugnacious um he's got like a slight uh almost lisp um that weirdly makes him seem like an even tougher guy uh in in a way that is hard to describe um uh i uh another scene that because i i haven't seen pedro costa's documentary where does your hidden smile lie but um there is a i guess pedro costa shot them shooting gianni uh buscarino on the train and i mentioned them like um paying their crew at the beginning of the week they were also incredibly gracious toward their actors and um uh, apparently, um, uh, when they're done shooting the the scene, Daniel Hullet says, uh, shouts, I will never forget you, Gianni Buscarino. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, also, they, I don't know what they, uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't do action and cut, like, like Clint Eastwood, you know, how he, oh, sure, <laughs> um, um, they would, it wasn't always the same, but Straub, who would do the, in-person directing while they were shooting would usually start scenes by saying, if you please. And <laughs> then by saying, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting to see like interviews with them and, and they're like uh, sparring, especially Straub, like sparring with other filmmakers that he hated most of the movies and with, uh, with critics and, and with audiences, but to see with the people they worked with, um, they were clearly so generous. Um, and, in and, and loving they also uh they would at the end of every day send the crew home and they would clean up and then take the film to the lab themselves nice. uh, because they they wanted their crew to be able to go home and have dinner and have a good night's sleep and stuff um seemed like a seemed like a fun set to to work on but yeah. um uh yeah i i like i like cecilia um uh quite a bit um but I think I already kind of talked about the reasons why I like, uh, Jenny Buscarino. I like I like the character whose name is, Oh, he doesn't have a name. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a part of the train and there's the, you, you mentioned the, the, you've heard of the second half and the long scene with the mother in the house, but that's actually not the end.
0: No, that's true. They do have one kind of
1: wrap up scene. The end of, of, of the scene is him, um, talking to a guy who a knife sharpener like a street uh knife sharpener and um that uh uh, that discussion i think um feels like in a way that i i I don't know i think it's maybe good i obviously think it's good but i think it's maybe good the thing you were talking about uh, that you didn't like about them not imposing a point of view because i do wonder how much they would have come across as condescending if they impose
0: too much of their point of view like yeah but i don't mind condescending like i talked uh, about this with the Goddard episode dude condescended all day and like i can hang i can
1: <laughs> but I, I mean some of, I, I think some of their ideas about the working class were the kind of ideas that intellectual liberals have about the working class maybe a bit of like uh insulting romanticism um sure but uh, because of their dedication to just translating things straight across they didn't have a um they didn't give themselves the opportunity to put the thumb on the scale too much with that. Um so I uh um I quite like this this final scene with uh um with Gianni Busgream and the and the knife sharpener. Uh so that's it for you. Uh I have one more which um is uh was made after Huile's death, but she is credited it's a documentary Mm. called the itinerary of jean bricard um it's from 2008 because the reason she's that Straub credited her is because they they developed the movie and were developing this this documentary um while she got sick from the cancer that killed her in 2006 um and then they were supposed to shoot it that year they weren't able to so he wasn't able to finally shoot the movie until late 2007 it came out in 2008 um but so he did maintain her credit, um, uh, as, as co-director, uh, for the movie, even though it was actually filmed, um, more than a year after she passed away. But, um, this is a documentary about, uh, Jean Picard, who I've, uh, not Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, I keep Jean, hearing it that
0: way, but yeah. Yeah.
1: I, um, who I've not forgotten who that even is, um, <laughs> uh, because he's not physically in the movie. His, um, uh uh the film uh, so um um oh i guess he's a a writer uh of some sort anyway uh the he he, he grew up on an island off the coast of italy or no france his name is jean ricard it doesn't matter the point is he grew up on an island and The film is composed entirely of shots of that island as it exists now, kind of echoes of the Cézanne thing, showing the mountain as it is now instead of as it was in the in the painting. We don't see we hear we never see Jean Picard either. The entire movie is soundtracked by um, him talking about his childhood on the island. We're seeing it now. We're mostly seeing it from the shore in boats. Uh, When I say the movie is soundtracked by Jean-Bricard, it is also because this is the way that Strabo Hule made movies soundtracked by the roar of the boat engine. Um, So you're hearing water and you're hearing this boat go, but you're also hearing him talking uh, the entire time. And um, uh, uh, It's all in black and white. You're seeing shots of this island, mostly from the water, but then, like I said, there are some uh shots on the land, um shots that may be Jean Bricard's childhood home. It's not entirely clear. Well I guess at one point it is pretty clear because he talks about like where the um the stove was and, and we see the stove. So I think it is, is his childhood home. Godfrey, I know Straubman Houlet wouldn't shoot another home and say it was his home. That would be completely <laughs> against their philosophy of filmmaking. Uh but uh again this one's only about an hour long but something about the sound of the water in the engine and the, um, uh, the, the voice of jean Picard and these, um, lovely black and white compositions, uh, is really intoxicating. I, 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 um, really found this movie to be, uh, uh, quite compelling. Uh, uh, it's, it's sad that it's, um, the end for them uh or the you know um it's sad to end on this to end on a movie that daniel Hillet died developing um i didn't watch any of uh straub's many movies that he made uh uh after that because even though we did this inspired you know because straub dying i really wanted this profile to be straub Hillet. yeah Um, absolutely yeah so uh feels a bit scattered because of our internet issues. Um, but we got to the end of it. Um, there's probably more things that I wanted to say that I read in this, in this, uh, this book that was really interesting, but we don't have time. We gotta, we gotta go while the internet is working. Absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, you can, uh, find us at battleship You can email me at David, at battleship email Tyler, Tyler, battleship pretension.com. Maybe someone will read it to him. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Davy pretension. Check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother, my wife and I watch an episode of friends and an episode of how I met your mother of ev- every week. Um, this week we got a, a good, um, uh, guest star in how I met your mother, the great Francis Conroy, always been a fan of Francis. Conroy. Yeah, on. shows up in anything. um, so uh check that out that's all there uh scott where do you want people to find you
0: uh yeah you can try me on twitter if you dare um letterboxd pretty solid as well and uh yeah back here next week for i think we're resuming end of the year stuff next week yeah that's exciting yeah
1: but uh yeah rest in peace uh uh john marie strobe and danielle relay um, I'm sorry that Scott hates your movies, but I uh, <laughs> really loved them. Uh, I look forward to watching more and, uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, you there? Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. So, uh, good
0: luck editing that.
1: Yeah. That's going to be a bitch. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm seeing you next week then. Yeah. No, no, tri- no trivia. No trivia. Uh, for individual achievements. So, okay, cool. Uh, I'll have to find the list, Tyler, because I always forget what the categories are. Yeah, year. please do. Um, but I know there's one wild card that we do every year. Right. So. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I'll find the list. Cause I know Tyler has emailed it to me before and I'll send it to you. All right. All right. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Bye.